Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is, nor, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This is God's word. All right. As I mentioned, you can, uh, you're welcome to take kids back to the kids' room if you'd like. And uh, yeah, let's jump in. Look, the other Pastor Nick's here. Now we've got two Pastor Nick's. Yeah. Um, just briefly, uh, as, as kids go back, there's a couple of details I want to tell you about for the year, and that's that number one, uh, this, our theme for the year is set apart, and we're kind of digging into some of the unique things about the Christian church that we're drawing out of Galatians, and also some of the, the callings that we feel really specifically to our church here, here at Mission. We've described a little bit of kind of this, this outpost idea of that we want to be, in a way, like a, a very established and dedicated Christian church that is intentionally placing itself in the space where people have, might have doubts or questions or might be on the fence. So we want to be very missionally minded, going intentionally to be in those spaces, um, while at the same time being, being very dedicated to the gospel. So the, the book of Galatians is helpful in this because here in the book of Galatians, it is, is extremely about the gospel but it's also in a context where Paul had taken the gospel out to a culture, um, to, the, to Galatia, where the gospel hadn't been known, and he was dealing with kind of the misconceptions between uh, the, the established church folk of Jerusalem who were, who were holding on to traditions and especially uh, the idea of circumcision. And he's standing on the gospel as he works out this, this big difference, this striking difference um, that existed between the established church and the new church founded in Galatia. And we've seen, throughout the past year, we've seen, we've seen difficult stuff. We've seen a lot of, uh, a lot of feelings uh, you know, around cultural issues. And we felt that looking at a book like this, this is probably the best book we've gotten in the New Testament that works out something that had kind of political um, you know, stuff attached to it, that had religious stuff attached to it, that also was very, very divisive. And watching um, in Paul somebody lead through uh, that that issue in a gospel-centered way, so that's why we're that's why we're going after it. And of course, we've been talking a lot um, about the law. So let's pray, and we'll jump in and see uh, 
see what we get out of this one. I'm hopeful for this to be a, a helpful time where we get some clarity uh, from this book. So pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for the chance to be here with my church. Um, we, we are so grateful uh, to be gathered uh, for every, every face that we haven't seen for a while. It's so good um, to see them. Thank you for the ways that you have uh, worked in our lives and sustained us through such a difficult year. I pray for, for more and more depth of, of love and genuine Christian service here amongst the people of this church. I pray that we would carry that out into our community to those, those people that we feel very called that we should reach. And I pray that we would exhibit your grace and exhibit a love for your law that we would be a light and salt in the earth. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, this is the last, uh, this is actually the last uh, Galatians sermon before the summer series that we're going into, by the way. So we're going to be talking about the diverse disciples. It's so interesting to think about. We planned this out pre-pandemic. Um, it, it's, a, it's such an interesting thing to think about. We planned a lot of stuff that we did through the past year pre-pandemic, so like political discipleship, that wasn't an idea we had in the middle of the pandemic and in the middle of kind of the upheaval. That was an idea we had before because we wanted to help lead people through it. And this diverse disciples, this was, I remember Ray brought this up and he's like, hey, maybe for the summer we should, we should go into these, you know, the lives of these disciples that were so different. And an interesting phenomenon's happened um, in, our, in our day in, in the church world, and that's that this show The Chosen is on. And some of you may have seen that. But one of the things that show is really diving into is some of the kind of, you know, it's, it's a creative attempt to understand the background of some of these disciples and maybe how hard it was for them to follow Jesus together. I think it's really timely to talk about this stuff. And, and it's cool to see how we kind of had these prompts to do this a long time ago. So, so this is the, you're going to get a break from all this law talk is what I'm trying to tell you because there's been a lot. Um, we'll come back. Actually, the end of this scripture that Tabitha just read is what we'll jump back into after the summer. Um, but I know there's been a lot. And I just want to remind you, we have a value here at Mission that is depth. And we talk about depth as, as depth of relationships and depth of study and depth of you know, content. And so this is, this is one of those moments. We're reminding the depths of the Bible, chasing after the deeper questions of our hearts and we're hoping that this begins an engagement that, that takes us deeper into the lives of one another and into our deeper questions. So what are the questions we have around this scripture? Typically, this law of God, people are typically asking things like, just what, what is it exactly that we're talking about? And then what do we do with it as Christians? I think that simple little question right there is one of the most difficult things to work out in the Christian church. What do we do with the law? What do we, what do, we do? I'll, I'll bring up some laws later, but you know, when the, it says don't tattoo yourself, how we haven't thrown Mike out of the church, you know? What do we do? What do we do with the law? How do we, is it gone? Is it done? Why was it there in the first place? We're going to try to dig into that this evening. But in short, what, what is the law? When you read law in the Bible, it can mean a number of things, but, but a couple of the prominent ones are, is it could mean kind of the, the five foundational books of the Bible. That's, that's one thing it could mean when you read that uh, in the scriptures, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that, that as a whole could be called the law. 
But it also could mean the commandments, the specific commandments found and explained in those books. So the commandments of God, and you could start with creation ordinances. There are certain commandments that God gave right when when the world was created. Um, And then there's the commandments that God gave from Mount Sinai, of course, to Moses. And then the the commandments that work out those commandments. So the two uh, later, you know, Jesus would help us define that what are the greatest? And this seems to be a traditional understanding. What are the greatest laws? What are the most important ones of all those laws? You'll remember he was asked that question, and the answer was, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, good answer. That's right. The the law and the prophets hang off of these two laws, which means that these are the foundational principles. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. You see those developed out in the Ten Commandments. Kind of the, you know, we're used to seeing the traditional picture of the Ten Commandments, these two stone tablets. There really are two tables of those Ten Commandments. There's the God-oriented laws, like have no other gods before you, and even that you should have a Sabbath rest. Um, That's a a time to kind of rest before God, to receive from God, and not, you know, to move forward by your own efforts, to worship God, to kind of place Him in the foremost and the the top place in your life. Um, There's Commands around faithfulness to God. Do not take the Lord your God in name, or the name of the Lord your God in vain, for instance, which isn't just saying, oh God. That's like, don't, don't take into possession or claim that name, um, you know, in, unless you're serious about it, unless you intend to uh, actually try to follow this God. And then there's the others-oriented laws. Well, you shouldn't lie to one another. You shouldn't murder one another. You shouldn't commit adultery, you know, marriage laws. Laws about honor and theft and coveting and so on. And then there's the 613 additional commandments. And they depend upon and explain those, those 10 commandments. And some of those contain timeless moral truths. There's some in there that people look at and, you know, they'll just go, yeah, that's still true today. All, all of that is true. Um, and they're, they're just, they seem kind of very obvious, like that type of killing, intentional killing. Yeah. There isn't a lot of argument today about intentional killing, right? It's people generally agree, shouldn't do it. In some cases, these 613 additional commandments are applying the situation to Israel as a specific chosen nation of God. And some of those are kind of temporary in their specifics. And some of those have bigger meaning, but you have to do a little more work to figure them out. Um, In other cases, there's teaching about God's holiness and his requirements for sinful people and how they could be reconciled to a holy God. And those, we would say, are preparing us for the day when Jesus would come and fulfill laws like those and really bring them to a completion. So they aren't null and void, but they've been kind of surpassed and supplanted by the work of Jesus. So the law in the Bible can be the Pentateuch, first five books, or the commandments, okay? So what do we, what do, we do with them? That's, that's the bigger question. What do we do with these laws? So Paul, in our book of Galatians here, has been arguing that God made promises to his people through the patriarch Abraham, and they were received by faith. And this was centuries before the commandments of Sinai, 430 years, he says. So the promises of God that he made to Abraham that, that Abraham's seed, his heir, would be a blessing and that there would be a future hope. Those promises are not conditions of keeping the law because they came 
far before the law. In other words, you don't keep laws to get God to love you or choose you. And Abraham is our example of that in the Bible. God chose to love Abraham without him keeping the Bible's laws first. Abraham believed God when God came to him and made a promise to him, and God counted that as righteousness for Abraham, his his belief, his faith. In Galatia, during these early days of the church, there was a group of people trying to require the new Galatian Christians to follow Old Testament laws such as circumcision and the Jewish feasts and festivals. And Paul is as angry as he gets anywhere in the Bible about this. He says some really drastic stuff. There's a portion we'll get to later where he says that he wishes that these people who wanted the others to be circumcised would just emasculate themselves. I mean, that's like a pretty, that's a pretty brutal little word picture there that he employs to try to show just the depth of frustration at the fact that these people were trying to cut off. I mean, you just think about the depth of this language. They're trying to cut these people off from the church for not being circumcised. And he's like, why don't you cut yourselves? I mean, it's, it's a harsh word that Paul has for these people. And his, he's, he's being so harsh because he's saying their faith is enough. And he's proving that with the, the, the talk about Abraham. Their faith is enough, enough to include them, enough to solidify their inclusion in the people of God. Don't add to their burden. Don't add to their burden. And then Paul anticipates the question that they would have back to him because they they, then they would say, so why do we have this law then if you're saying this? And that's kind of where our scripture today begins. What's the point of that law? What do we do with it if, if you're saying we don't apply it now? What are you saying to us? What do we do with it? So we're going to work through Paul's answer. Here's, here's, I'm going to read sections of the scripture again. Why then the law? Paul asks his own, the question he anticipates. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. I'm actually not going to spend a lot of time on the ins and outs of that second part. It's interesting, but I think has less impact maybe, on us. I'm going to spend more time on the first. The law was added because of transgressions. There's a little debate on what that means, okay, but I'm going with something here. Um, The law defines transgressions. It creates boundaries and consequences and therefore restrains transgressions in so doing. It's like what parents do with kids, right? Transgression means boundary crossing. Um, you've heard me say probably, if you've been around for a while, this, I've, I've said this one more than any other, my little explanation from the life of Abby, but she gave, she gave us an example of it when we were out shooting basketball uh, the other day. For those of you who are out there, I don't know if you noticed, the ball went in the street, Abby went running. What did she do? She stopped at the street. She looked at me. She said, Dad. And I looked and I said, go ahead. Abby, at age 13, still knows not to run into the street because early I taught her that was a boundary line. If she crossed it, there was discipline. She wasn't allowed to go into the street. I disciplined her not because I love disciplining. That's not my favorite thing. 
It is one of my least favorite things. But I don't want Abby to get hit by a vehicle. That's of high priority for me, is her safety, that her life would be spared. And I noticed that for her, she, she loved to just run, right? And maybe some of your kids are that way too. So I gave her a boundary line, this, the curb. If she went past the curb, there were big consequences, and, and there were. We only had to exhibit those a couple times. And she got it. So she would run up to curbs and, and stop. That was the, that's transgression was if you moved past the curb. So that's, that's what the law was there for. So here's the lines. Don't cross it. Here are, the, here are the ramifications. If you cross the line, this is what happens, okay? In the case of God's people, God's law defined and restrained transgressions, Paul is saying, until Christ came. That was its job. It was one of its jobs, Elsewhere in Romans, Paul discusses it from a different perspective, what that law looks like for someone who's not in Christ, who doesn't know the Father who made the law. And for them, they still know, Paul says, that there are laws. There's nobody, you know, find me anybody that you know, they will have a law. They'll have some concept of transgression. They do. Everybody does. And Paul said, that's built in innately, but for them, their experience of the law is not as good. It's more negative. It's more restrictive for them. Now, we see, we see that the law exists not only in the Bible, right, but all throughout our world. There's a lot of disagreement in our culture, in our day, throughout the world about what the law is or what is good or right or true But if there's one thing we know, and we could see it in the U.S., and 2020 gave us just a double dose of it, right? And this is, I'm saying now, just in our our culture, in our world, is there are people that we will try, judge, convict, and sentence as as a culture. Now, I'm not talking about courts of law. We do that too, right? But we judge people. There are wrong people. There are liars. There are kind of wishy-washy, wavering people that bother us. They're selfish people. They're oppressive people. They're people that are trying to take what's rightfully mine. They're people who have failed. They're people who block my goals. And that's a description, by the way, not of one group in our culture, but of all of them. We all do these things. It's a description of what happens in marriages. It's a description of what happens in friendships and in workplaces. We judge people and convict them of their crime. And how, how can they be redeemed in our system? We, they might have to serve a sentence. They might have to wait while we're silent to them. They might have to undergo a tongue lashing online or something like that. They might need to renounce their beliefs and say that we are right and they were wrong. And if they sufficiently do that, we might let it slide. Or they might have to go away and just be dead to us. We like to believe in our culture we're not into the death penalty, but there are a lot of people, if they were dead to me and I never had to see them again, right, be fine with it. We believe in law. We really do, even as a culture. What we're losing faith in is not law, but a God behind the law. 
The shift is that we as a culture are beginning to believe that each one of us has the right to rule. That, that is in the, in the undergirding of kind of where we're at philosophically. It's the end game of what you could call expressive individualism is I make a law and you make a law and everybody makes a law. But in my world, my law is the only one that really matters. Some people call it the rise of the modern self, the sovereignty of the self. But the idea is the law comes from me. If you agree with me, great. If not, I'll I'll leave you and I'll find a tribe. And the tribe is one that is defined by me and that I choose for now. I might leave it. I might go to another one. And people are beginning to ask this question, where's the cohesive nature of this? Where is this going? Um, when everyone is a sovereign self, when everyone tr- chooses their own tribe, how do we have, like, you know, in our context, a united states? That, that statement almost feels like we say it, but it's like, is that even real anymore? How would we find it? This, this type of having a law, everyone has a law for themselves, tears apart communities, families, churches, friend groups, but it teaches us something. As a culture, we like to say that we're not legalistic folks. In and out of the church, we're not legalistic folks, but we are. We believe in the law. What we suffer from is a lack of clarity on where it comes from and what it's for. What could it accomplish? If, though, you see that God has found you, if you're a recipient of grace, that God by his grace has brought you near to him, and and that's to say, if you're a Christian, you should know who you belong to, that you belong to God, and that the law belongs to God as well. And it should change your orientation and relationship to the, God, for, to, to the law. For God's people, the law shows them God's character, how to please him. It was an interesting thing. I mentioned Abby and the curb. When she looked over at me, you know, she didn't look over. And this is in, I'm sorry, I'm picking on you. But when she looked over, it wasn't this moment of where she was like, I'm under restriction. What do I do? I think in that moment, she knew I would tell her if it was safe or not that I cared, that I didn't want her to get hit by a car. And when she, she looked over, she was checking in because there was a trust. There's a trust that she has for me that I'm not going to send her into danger. For God's people, we know that the one who made the law is one we can trust, that the boundaries and the consequences are there to keep us safe and within his promise, Okay. So the law was added because of transgressions. It teaches us what they are and tells us what to do and what not to do. For the Christian, it's a gift from our Father, who we trust. If we don't know the God behind the law, it's always kind of a moving target, and we create a law for ourselves. Verses 21 and 22. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. Here's Paul saying, it's not, it's not in opposition. If a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. 
This is a very interesting line of thought. And promise here, of course, as we've said, it applies to the gospel. The sovereign movement of God that calls and blesses Abraham by sheer grace and then includes the blessing of all of earth's people that eventually leads to Christ coming and what we now call our good news or our gospel. The law is not contrary to the gospel. It was just that the gospel in the law was imprisoned under sin because it brings an awareness of sin. And outside of the gospel, outside of the gospel, an awareness of sin makes us almost more interested in it than averse to it. Our sin, our sinful bent, makes it impossible for us to keep the law so we can experience the law as restrictive and less than it was intended to be until the day that Christ comes and we get to experience it for what it is intended to be. And the reason for this is because the law was not given to give life. Paul is saying that wasn't its purpose. If anyone was able to succeed at the law, there would be no mercy and grace for that person. The law wasn't there to give the life that mercy and grace can give. But it was there to help us understand grace and prepare it, prepare us to receive it. But it didn't bring us life. It imprisoned that idea, held it captive until Christ would come. Verse 23 and 24. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now, this is where it gets really interesting because the word guardian here, now he's kind of building out on this imprisoned idea. The word guardian here is really important. It's a, it's a word, it's pedagogue. And the word is not as simple as you might think. When you think of being in prison in our context and having a guard, right? What do I think of like the guy in the uniform with the gun, right? And he's trying to keep me in my cell, restrain and intimidate. And he's armed so that I cannot escape. He's a ward of the state assigned because you are a lawbreaker and he's going to keep you in there until you pay. That's, that's what I think of. But that is not the word at all. This scripture is addressed to we. We were held captive. It's addressed to the church. It's addressed to the new Israel, the people of God, the people that, ex- that God had extended the promise of grace to. And a pedagogue, that word, was a trusted servant, probably in a wealthy home, who was tasked with training children to follow in their parents' footsteps. This, this specific type of guardian was the type of person who loved the mother and father of the home, was paid well to love the child and to teach the child everything that the mother and father wanted to have instilled in their child so that that child could grow up and thrive and follow in his mother and father's footsteps. This kind of guardian used rules, like with my curb illustration, to prepare the child to instinctively trust and imitate their parents. So Paul is saying that the law was like that kind of guardian assigned by God for us that taught us rules, preparing us for something better when we would receive grace and be able to be lovingly trained and prepared to walk with Christ, to be mature 
in Christ. That is what the law was designed for, for God's people. A pedagogue, a guardian, teaching us, training us, preparing us for the day when we would have freedom in Christ. So what does the Christian today then do with the law, if that's true? Under the teaching, under the new standing of Christ, the one who's come to fulfill the law. First of all, Christians have freedom to love God's law. And this was true of people who saw the grace of God before Christ as well, who anticipated Christ. They could experience this too. We see this in Psalm 119. Here's all throughout that Psalm, but here's a section, 73 to 77. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Do we cry out like this? Right? Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I've hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. You've disciplined me because you've loved me, is what it's saying. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. That's how the Christian views the law. The word freedom here and elsewhere in the Bible is really important. It's not the absence of influence of others in your life. It is not personal autonomy. It is not necessarily something like democracy or personal rights. Freedom in the scriptures is living out of grace with a newly oriented relationship to God and his law, able to love and follow the law for the right reasons. And I have to take just a brief aside to say this idea of freedom. We're a small little church, but let's do our part. Let's not, let's not damage this idea anymore. Later on in the year, we're going to read Galatians 5.1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This is not about wearing masks, people. This is not about being a Republican or a Democrat. This is not about whether or not you should own weapons or whether or not you should be for or against oppressed groups. It's not about politics or sexual preferences at all. This verse gets thrown on so many memes and applied to so many things that it's just sad because it's not what it's about. It's about our orientation as Christians to the law of God. Before, can I just give a, can I just have a pastoral moment? Don't share Bible verses you don't understand with people. Please don't. Because what can happen is you can take a rich, deep verse about our orientation to the law of of God and slap it onto something it doesn't have anything to do with. And non-Christians are pretty smart. And they can go read this stuff and see, like, "That that was a total misuse of your own Bible. It's not working. We really need to stop it. Please. There you go. There's my, there's my moment. The Christian today takes a scripture like that. That is so true of us. We have freedom in Christ. We don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. We don't go back to the law as like, here's how I might get right with God. We don't ask that question anymore. We don't say, how do I get to God using the law? 
How do I find acceptance using the law? How do I succeed? What's the formula? How do I win at life using the law? We don't because we're free. Those are all forms of graceless orientation to the law. When you're living under the law that way, you're, you're under it. It's oppressive to you. If, it, if, it, if you fail, it'll be oppressive to you because you'll feel like, I'm no good. The law is condemning me. You'll hate it. Or worse, if you believe you've succeeded, you'll feel the oppression of self-righteousness that says, I deserve this. God owes me. I've done everything you asked me to do. Why don't you take care of me? And that's a satanic lie. That's not how the, the law of God works. It, that, that orientation to the law destroys grace and alienates you from your neighbor because you'll be jealous and hateful when they get from God what you wish you got from God. The Christian approaches the law as one who is free, who knows they have the riches of God in Christ and they approach the law saying, how do I please him? What can I learn about his heart from in here? How can I honor him and love others? Second of all, the Christian with the law goes beyond the bare demands of the law to the heart of the law. And this usually means we do more and not less. And we see this all throughout the Bible. Take any law like a creation ordinance. Let's look at some of those like commands given at creation, like be fruitful and multiply. You know, is that command just like have children Is that all there is to that? Like get married no matter how well you get along and just make sure children go forward? It's not that simple, right? What about subdue the earth? Is that just a command to like get to work? Just go to work. It's not that simple. It's we were were made to work and create, to, to live out of the image of God. There's more to it. Rest on the seventh day. Is that just like take a day off? It's no, there's more to it. It's not just take a day off. It's take a day off to receive from God and to to just proclaim to the world that he is the giver of all good things, that he was the one that created all six days and that you're a recipient. It's a grace-motivated command to teach you to proclaim grace and rest in grace. It's not just the bare command. There's more to it. Did, Did God want you to get married just to be obedient? No. Work to just get things done? No. Rest so you don't burn out? No, there's a beautiful motivation behind all of these laws. Think about this, the commands, right? All these commands were given on Sinai and all these rules about worship and sacrifice. And I don't have time to go into all this, but you can look in the prophets, Isaiah, Amos, and Jeremiah. And in all of these books, you're going to find a time when God says something to the effect of, I hate your rituals, I hate your feasts, I take no pleasure in them, stop doing them. Why would God do that when he'd commanded it all to, he'd commanded it. Why would he do that? Why would he hate what he commanded? And it's because they did only the bare ritual and were missing the heart of the law that was to turn their heart toward God and their neighbor. In Amos, he says, instead of trampling my courts, right, let justice roll down like mighty rivers, This is like a hyperabundance, like dedicate your life to to like a hyperabundance of justice. Why would you do that? Because God is a God of justice, because your neighbors need justice, right? In Isaiah, he'll say correct oppression. Why is that? Because God is not oppressive. He's a life giver. And our neighbor needs to be cared for. Get to the heart of the law. That, 
God is not saying I commanded something and I hate it. He's saying I hate when you don't go deep. I, I hate when you don't understand the heart of my law and its intention and you just do the bare ritual. And then, of course, Jesus comes in his Sermon on the Mount, which is probably a repeat sermon that he gave over and over. He takes the laws and what does he do? Make them easier? He does not make them easier. He says, you've heard it said, don't murder, right? But I'm going to tell you, don't even utter an angry word. How are you doing on that this week, right? I am not doing well. He would say, you've heard, don't commit adultery, but I, the Lord, come in the flesh, say to you, don't even look at another person and say, I wish that I had a husband or wife more like them. Don't covet your neighbor's wife or husband. Wow. What, you know what that means? It's like, don't ever be disappointed in them. Why is he doing this? To keep people out? To make us feel worse? And that is the effect he had on people who were trying to be righteous by the law. They went, who can keep this? But to those who knew that they had the promise of God, who were 100% safe and accepted by grace, to them... He's showing them that these laws were a starting point to discern the very heart of God. I'm convinced that this is how all laws work best. And I see this as evidence that we were created in God's image. Let's look at a contemporary safety law. Let's take it out of the Bible laws for a second and just take it on a law, a law that was inspired by a biblical law. And I'm going to say one of those is the speed limit. Why do I say that? Because Deuteronomy 22, you know, for example, is a safety law. You have to have a parapet on your flat roof. And why, why is that? Because, you know, kids run off flat roofs and die, right? Or adults walk, they take a step back and they die. So do things that keep people safe. And we have a multitude of rules like that. You say, why isn't speeding in the Bible? It's simple. They didn't have cars, okay? So we have to like build these things out. We have to work these things out. But we still have a lot of these, a lot of these safety rules. Let's, let's take speed limits. So imagine you're, you're headed up into the foothills or something, and, and you're, you're driving the speed limit on Swan going up north, and then you get into a neighborhood, and the speed limit decreases, and then you get one of those, on one of those long, winding driveways. And you look around, and what do you not see? There's no speed limit sign, right? Do you mash on the gas and go 95? No. Why? Why not? Because you know that just because a speed limit sign isn't posted, that what's been trained in you, what you've been, what the the training has been, what your teaching and transgression has been, right, is that these safety laws are there to teach you principles that you want to keep people safe with your car. So when you get off of a road with a speed limit sign, You don't immediately go, I don't need to be careful with this car anymore, or you shouldn't. You still do. People live closer to here. You don't want to endanger these people. The idea underneath, you know, know, Deuteronomy 22, the parapet law, and underneath the speed limits isn't the bare law. It's to love your neighbor. It's to look out for people and take care of people. Not less, but more, 
Jesus asked for more elsewhere. Even, even in the idea of when you think about the, the law, the Old Testament, how people were needed to be forgiven and they needed to have the sacrifices. And of course, Peter came to him and said, how many times are we supposed to forgive people? Like up to seven? And Peter's thinking that would be a lot. And that's a lot in my mind. Because like I've forgiven people two, three times and it gets pretty tiring, right? So he goes, up to seven? And Jesus says, I tell you 70 times seven. And those are kind of, those numbers have some significance. What, he wasn't giving you exact math. He was essentially saying, how about you just don't ever put a limit on it? Don't ever draw a line over and over and over and over and over and over. And the, the Old Testament law doesn't say you have to do that, right? It gives us good reasons to hold people, people accountable, but the Christian is called to the heart of the law, which is grace, the heart of the law behind forgiveness, which is to extend it deeply and more and more and more. And then in Jesus, we see him teaching and then exhibiting unending forgiveness. How forgiving is Jesus to me? 70 times seven and more. So the Christian doesn't just go to the bare requirement of the law, but deeper. And when you go deeper, when you take the law deeper, it teaches you something. It teaches you how much you need to be forgiven and those who are forgiven much, love much, that's, it creates humility in us. When you see that God wants you to go deeper than the bare requirements of the law, it makes you need grace more and more and more, and it kills self-righteousness. It helps us show mercy, which is at the heart of the intent of God's law. And now see, this is where it can get a little complicated. Because sometimes you get under the letter of the law and you can be accused of breaking it. It's kind of an interesting thing that happened to Jesus, right? If you look in the Old Testament, there's moments like Nadab and Abihu in, in the Old Testament, they, they burn strange fire and they're killed, right? And then you've got David comes in and he eats the sacred showbread and he's not killed. Why? There's something about the heart and the reason. And God is looking at that. He knows the heart. He examines the heart. But it gets a little complicated in here. Like I mentioned earlier, there's the laws against the tattoos. And, you know, if you stayed at the surface of that law, we'd have to fire Mike. And guess what? Me too. I got one. I have a, I have a tattooed wedding ring. I'm out. I'm done. Right? But if you get to the heart of that law, you'll do much harder things than avoid tattoos, truthfully. Because that tattoo body mark was a sign of worshiping other gods. You might say, ah, easy. I don't worship other gods. Are you sure? Worship is what you ascribe the most worth to. If someone followed you around with a camera, what would we desire that you value the most, right? Whose names are your lips? What do you spend your money on? What do you meditate on the most? What does my Cubs hat and the fact that I listened to a game this week mean about me, right? That may be closer to a tattoo than my tattoo. What about you? What gets your time? What's on your mind? What are you worried about? What are you angry about? When you feel better, what just happened? What do you hope in? If you had this, you'd, be, you'd feel better. You'd be more calm and secure. You wouldn't be so frustrated. What is that? Those are signposts to our idols. Those are your tattoos. That's what you're not allowed to have. 
Getting under the laws to the heart of God and his will for us is the task of the Christian. We're to examine that law and not just say, what's the bare minimum, but what's under here? That's why you meditate on the law day and night. You want to get in there. You go, how do I please him? How do I really love my neighbor? And when you do that, you might be called a friend of sinners. That's what Jesus was called. Because sometimes he sat and ate with people that weren't keeping the law, and he was really trying to get underneath and know them. And people looked at that, and they went, no, you're not doing it. Or you might be like Paul, who was judged as not devoted enough to the law. That's what's, what's happening with the Judaizers in Galatia. He's, they're, being, they're saying he's not dedicated to the law. He's not, a good, he's not a good person. He's leading you astray because he's seeking fidelity to the gospel. He's trying to get under and deeper into the law. People won't always see that. You'll get accused. But finally, of course, when you get under the laws, they aren't easier to keep. They're harder. The Sermon on the Mount isn't easier than keeping the law. It's harder. In fact, it's impossible. Because the law, as Paul said, was not meant to give us life. I mentioned speed limits, the most basic of human laws. And, you know, that, and they grow up from God's command to make us love our neighbor or teach us to love our neighbor. And I've been trying to be more attentive to my driving. I mean, I think, you know, going on the Louisiana trip, some people got to experience how much I stink at merging into traffic with a trailer and been working on it. But just the other day, I pulled out, I misjudged a guy which lane he was in. I pulled right in front of a car and he had to swerve. And I, we almost had a major accident. I've been trying. He was extremely furious. He you know, all kinds of yelling and fists in the air. And even worse than that, I could have, I could have killed him. And, he, and I might have died in the... Pro- we, it was that bad. Um, that's a metaphor. That happened. But that's a metaphor for the most dedicated Christian. Trying to do better. Still falling short. Still harming others. Still failing to love God as we should. Even on our best day. And that's why it's so important to remember Paul's point in Galatians. We are people of the promise, people with a gospel. And this table that we get to come back to, it teaches us our reorientation to the law of God. I don't come to this table bringing anything. Just think of the symbolism. You do not bring your own bread. You do not bring your own wine. You come empty-handed. No righteousness, nothing to bring. Christ has set the table. Christ has lived the life that we should live. Bread, the bread of life. Who lived it? Who kept the law? There's one who's kept it, and it's Christ alone. And then his blood points us to all those sacrificial layers of the law, all the things, all the things we owe to God for the ways we failed. And he paid that price for all of us. We come entirely empty-handed. We don't come as law keepers. We come as law breakers who long to love the law as we should. And we come to him, our pedagogue, our teacher, the one who walked this this life and showed us how to do it. And not only that, but our, our faithful high priest who presented himself in the heavenly temple, 
Just like all those descriptions in Leviticus, he did it. He offered himself on the altar before God as the acceptable atonement for our sin. So now we come to him receiving, and we say to him, how do I please you? We thank him for his mercy, and we say, how can I show more mercy, having received everything from your hand? When we gather together, we come receiving grace. And then as you watch others gather up to this table, how can we withhold grace from them? We who have received everything from Christ. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to worship in three ways. We're going to take a time of confession before you come to the table. Just so you know, a few things. I am vaccinated, have been for a while. I'm going to wear gloves and a mask, and I'm going to put the, the bread in a little cup for you with either the wine or juice so you don't, we don't have to kind of collaborate within these cups and stuff to try to keep people as safe as possible, okay? But we're going to do these three things. We're going to come to the Lord's table, and this is a time to proclaim Christ until the day, the day he returns, to proclaim that he is our righteousness, to proclaim that his mercy and grace have reoriented us to his law. We're going to come out of confession to do that. When Mike starts to sing the first song, you can come up as you know, small groups or couples and I'll serve you. We have giving in the back as we always do. And then we're going to just spend the rest of our time together before dinner and we're just gonna we're gonna worship this God and, and make this a time to just think, orient your heart to him. Sing to him honestly. If you need to sit and reflect, that's okay too. But I'm gonna pray for us and just encourage you going into this time of confession, examine how am I oriented to God's law? Do I understand his grace? What are my idols and what do I need to lay down? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this evening, this chance to be here with your people. Um, we want the law to be our delight. There's so much to unpack here. I feel like I've talked on and on, and we haven't even scratched the surface. God, I pray that you, by your grace, would scratch the surface. I pray that you and the power of your Holy Spirit would change our orientation and our hearts toward you. I pray that you would do within us what we cannot do for ourselves, that you would utterly change our hearts, that we would see you for who you are, that we would love your law. I pray that we would extend grace to each other because you've extended it to us. God, as we come before you in confession, give us clear hearts and minds. Help us to just focus on you even for two minutes so that we can lay our souls before you and entrust our hearts to you.